It's Sports Bazaar. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. Hang on. She's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. <laughs> stories to ever occur. We'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many subplots <laughs> in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy. And, of course, as always, I say it every week, doing all the heavy lifting, uh, bar none, Titus O'Reilly. How are you, Titus? I'm very well. All right. Now, so what have you been nosing around with this week? What have you found for us? I don't think you you know this one at all. So sometimes you have an inkling, but this one I don't think you know this guy. He's a guy called Denny McLean. Not ringing any bells. So he was a famous pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Okay. But to say... I like your baseball stories, I've got to say. Baseball, so, so far, you've knocked them out of the park. I think baseball, for some reason, it might be the slow pace of it yeah. or the fact that there's a lot of Americans involved. <laughs> I've got to say, soccer and baseball tend to give... They throw up a lot. I'm still uh, laughing at... Was it 10 Cent Beer Night? Oh, yeah. It's one of the classics. <laughs> one of the classics. Go understand. back and listen to that I if you haven't listened to it. when that idea was pitched that no one rang alarm bells at all. Hang on, this could be problematic. The thing about Tencent Beer Night is there's that <laughs> bit in that movie Groundhog Day yes. where he's annoyed that he goes, I'm repeating this quite boring day over yes. and over. Like he's saying, oh, there was once a not- day where I met this woman and we drank cocktails on the beach and why Fantastic. couldn't it be that day? I often think if I was going to relive a day over and over, <laughs> Tencent Beer Night would be pretty fun. <laughs> I often think about, you know, time travel and people go, oh, where do you want to go? Back to the Renaissance? Yeah, or- yeah. No. Ten cent beer night, thank you. <laughs> so I was talking to a guy who lives in Cleveland yeah. after we'd done that episode, and uh, he said there's still great civic pride <laughs> over the, the. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to that episode because it's, it's one of our favourites. All right. So Denny McLean, he's born in March 29, 1944. Uh, he's named Dennis Dale McLean, but he was always known as Denny McLean. Yep. Born on the south side of Chicago, grew up in a very working class neighborhood. His mother, Betty, was described as remote. Right. Which is never what you want. His father, Tom, was described as angry. They were both Irish Catholics. Okay. So, you know, Irish Catholics on the south side of Chicago. All right. Yep. I'm getting um, a picture. His dad had been a star high school shortstop and he married his uh, Betty at 18. This is his parents. And she said, I don't want you to travel chasing a baseball career. So he stopped and didn't do it. So when Denny was born, his dad's in the army in Europe and went on to have jobs as a truck driver, insurance advisor, and made a lot of money on the side giving electric organ lessons, (laughs) which Denny takes up as well. He becomes quite proficient on the electric organ. His dad was very hard working, but he was also a chain smoker, big beer drinker. And he used to have angry outbursts that Denny and his brother always had fears of these outbursts. But yeah. despite that... Another type. They really liked him. Yeah. He was a big influence on them despite okay. this. And so at one point his dad got in a fist fight 
with a heckler who was heckling one of Denny's Little League games. <laughs> okay. You know those parents on the sidelines oh, during sport? that, yeah. And they never think another parent's not going to fight them. That's their mistake. With So you know that, especially in the Eastern European teams in soccer, they have the ultras, the big yep. soccer fans who have flares and are known oh, yeah. for violence and all that. Mm-hmm. I saw uh, one on social media, I think it was a Turkish club, the big ultras, there's like a thousand blokes all like ready to fight, yes. throwing flares and with signs sure. and chanting. They showed up at the this club, which is a professional club. It goes all the way down to under sevens and they showed up at the under sevens game. <laughs> <laughs> carried on like they were at a Champions League match. Just intimidating these <laughs> seven-year-old kids running around. I love it. Anyway, so his dad was a sort to get in a fight. Denny, though, became, by the age of 12, he once took the family car for a joyride. And he, so even though his dad was pretty angry and pretty tough, yeah. Denny was a bit of a wild know, boy. But despite this, he never liked his mum. He said his mum was cold and heartless woman who would never get involved if their dad was beating them up or anything. So he Is she didn't. unhappy? She feels like she's... Well, it's interesting because despite while this is all going on, he follows his dad because his dad was into baseball and playing the organ. So Denny right. both hates and loves his dad in a way. Sure. that love hates him. Okay. He also grew up in this family where it's just kind of interesting. He said, I had three uncles on the police force. So the Irish on the, the Irish, Chicago. Yeah. Of course. This is classic. They were very poor, but he remembered one of his uncles who was six foot five, he once, when he was later playing baseball, bumped into him after a game and his uncle said to him, what a great thrill it was to be able to beat on people legally. <laughs> yep. So this well is done. the sort of family he grew up in, right? Like Living the dream. All, yeah. Then he starts playing baseball and at eight, he's a star in Little League. Like he just strikes everyone out and he loves it. He loves the yep. acclaim. Goes to high school and becomes a star there pitching. Yep. But in 9.59, when he's 15, his father, dad, is driving out to watch him pitch for high school and he pulls off the road, slumps over the steering wheel and dies of a heart attack. Okay. And this is a huge impact. What makes this even worse is within a few months, his mum remarries. So I think that's what his mum thought of his dad. That's why we sh- she was so remote all yeah. the time. So by 15, his dad's just died. His mum, technically living with him still, but she's just not interested in them anymore. Okay. Yep. And so Denny's just basically doing whatever he wants from about the age of 15. But he's so good, he keeps getting to all different baseball teams. He actually leads the team to three city championships. He basically can't lose on the mound. Everyone tells him he's fantastic. And he says, when you're told every day how great you are, you tend to believe what you hear. And this is going to set him up for the future. He says, you begin to think you're bigger than you are. His role models are Arnold Palmer and Frank Sinatra. He says, Sinatra doesn't give a damn about anything and neither do I. I want to make $100,000. I want yachts and huge houses, maybe palaces. I want all the money I can spend and brother, that's a lot. Alrighty. So he graduates in 1962 and immediately signs with the White Sox in Chicago, receiving $10,000 bonus, $7,000 bonus if he makes it to the major league. So he turns up to Harlan, Kentucky to play for the Smokies in the Class D Appalachian League. This is the minor league okay, of baseball yeah. on his way. He makes his debut and he tosses a no-hitter and strikes out 16 batters. So straight off the he's bat. He's just straight off. Brilliant. He's only there for a couple of weeks because he's so good he gets promoted almost immediately. But in that time, he already defies team rules by making a 30-hour round trip to visit his girlfriend in Chicago on his off day <laughs> and gets in trouble. But he's so good they ignore it, which sets the pattern of behaviour that we're going to see. That's a green light. 
Uh, he just put, worked out if I keep throwing no hitters, no one's ever going to punish me. Correct. So he's so good he gets promoted again and he starts dating a woman called Sharon Baudreau. She's the daughter of a Lou Baudreau who was an announcer for the Chicago Cubs and he's in the Hall of Fame for baseball, yep. so a real star. And they get engaged uh, in 1963. So he's only just finished high school, very young, and they're married. So he then get, finds out that the White Sox, because he's played a, a year in the minor leagues, they either have to draft him or he goes into the draft. Right. They actually don't protect him in the draft. They say we've got an abundance of pitchers. So he gets wow. traded basically to the Detroit Tigers. So this is how he ends up in Detroit. Did they pounce? Was he Yeah, he up? was good enough that they were like, we'll, we'll take him. And it was only because the, the White Sox had so many. Yeah. So he's leaving his Chicago for Detroit. In the minor league still, he learns from one of his managers how to handicap horses for gambling and becomes lifelong obsessed with gambling, which okay. is going to lead him to all sorts of problems. <laughs> he also finds his other great love in life, which is womanizing. Yeah, so he's got this is a hobbies. lethal combination for the fella. There's not many gamblers that probably aren't womanizers. I hate to I broad, stereotype with a broad brush. <laughs> it's, it's built in <laughs> to the DNA. It doesn't happen that time. But this is the point where he, once he gets to Tiger Stadium, he starts to be noticed so he takes his debut in the major leagues he's moving up and down between the minor and major yep. leagues at this point he hasn't solidified it there but at the age of 19 he comes and pitches at tiger stadium against his own team the white Sox. this is his debut september 21 1963 he comes away with a complete seven hitter only seven hits giving up and basically dominates pitching on thing and also gets up and hits a home run in his first game. On fire. Which pitchers don't do. It's the only home run he ever hits in his major <laughs> career. So by this point, he's bouncing back and forth. But by 1965, he's back in the full time in the majors and he has this season where he goes 16 and 6 with a 2.61 earned run average. So that's on average. He gives up less than three runs a game, which is amazing. Yeah. Strikes out everyone. And he becomes one of the best pitchers. And by this point, so he's becoming a star. In the 1966 season, he goes even better. And this is where some of his character starts to come through. He wore one tinted contact lens and one untinted contact lens. For what purpose? Just so he looked weird. <laughs> and this is in the 60s. That would be yeah. scary on the mound. Is, yeah. he, is he playing like this? Yeah, yeah. He plays like this. And then he... Changes his hair color almost regularly from blonde to red and black and back again all Here the time. Here we go. Now, in the middle of this, suddenly he's a star. He's suddenly a, one of the best pitchers yep. in the league, right? And the people are saying, he's also the people start to notice he's got an outsized personality. Yep. Because he will say anything in an interview, sure. he'll bag the team, his own team, his teammates, <laughs> uh, other players, he'll bag the city, the fans. <laughs> like he just bags everyone. Fantastic. At this point, he also is playing the organ in clubs around the Midwest. At the baseball? No. He's not like, the organ player at the baseball. No, no, but he can. He does do that a bit late down the track. But he's So he will play a game of baseball and then he'll go and do gigs at the same time on his off days. So okay. he gets a $25,000 endorsement deal with Hammond Organs. Because <laughs> they're like, there's this pitcher that can play the organ really well. Now, his biggest vice at this stage is he has a huge appetite for Pepsi. A bit like John Daly with the Diet Cokes, right? But this is well before it. He would have 24 bottles every day. Stop it. A slab of Pepsi That's every too day. Much. That's too I, much. Look, I'm not a stickler for a strict diet. You look at me. <laughs> but that's 
You think 24 bottles of Pepsi is too much? Well, that's a bottle an hour. I know. That's how much he honestly drank. And this does come to impact him eventually. Pepsi hear of this obsession. He mentions it in an interview. He goes, I love Pepsi and I drink 24 bottles a day. Pepsi don't go, that sounds like too much. They go, we'll sign you as a sponsor. They pay him $15,000 a year plus 10 cases, which is 240 (laughs) bottles delivered to his house every week. Every week, Mick. 240 bottles delivered to his house every day. He's living the dream. So he's suddenly making $25,000 off ham and organs and $15,000 off Pepsi, plus all the free Pepsi. And so he's making more money off the field than pitching because this is in the Fantastic. 60s, right? The big thing out of signing Pepsi, apart from a future of obesity and diabetes, <laughs> he soon realises that he and Edwin K. Schober, who's the marketing vice president of Pepsi-Cola, they shared an affinity for gambling. Okay. So Pepsi is bad for him in two ways. Yeah. They get along like a house on fire. Like Denny's a star, Pepsi's sponsoring him, they hang out all the time, they both live in Detroit. What type of gambling? Are we go to the track horses or are we the mainly, horses, horses mainly. They love the horses. They realize after a while that to fund their losing gambling habits that it would be much better if they ran a bookmaking operation. So they okay. become hands-off silent partners, which we'll come back to bite him later. Not content with traveling like with the rest of his team, he also gets into flying and he buys his own airplane and learns to fly it and he convinces the Detroit Tigers, the baseball team, to let him fly himself to games. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious. So when everyone else is getting the team flight, yeah, here he comes. Here he comes. <laughs> so it gets to the 1967 season, this is memorable because there's a four-way race for the the division title, the pennant race, between the Tigers, the Boston Red Sox, the Minnesota Twins, and the Chicago White Sox. Now, McLean's pitching pretty well this year, but as it comes down tight between these four teams and they need to win every game, he injures his the two toes on his left foot. They're both broken saying he stubbed them after his foot had fallen asleep. He said, I was watching television and fell asleep and I got up when I heard some raccoons getting into the garbage (laughs) cans, stood up and broke both of my toes. This meant he didn't pitch for 13 days right in the middle of this Mm -hmm. race for the pennant, right? Which in the final game, he finally comes back against the California Angels and they have to win to get a one-off game playoff for the Red Sox for the American League pennant. But he's pitches terribly because of his two broken toes right. and the time he's missed, and they lose, and the Red Sox win. Now his teammates not happy with this because many doubted the injury story. Okay, some say they think he did it kicking a water cooler in the dugout, but there's also just hints that maybe something a bit more serious has gone on. No one can prove anything, so it sort of all goes away in the background for now. 1968, though, is the year in a sporting sense that makes Denny. In entering it, the Tigers are seen as this talented group of individuals who just don't play well together. Right. They're fun to watch, but they don't always win when they should. All the parts don't work together. (laughs) Now, 1968 is interesting in America because this is where there's race riots everywhere. There's the assassination of Martin Luther King. Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated. So America, this is a terrible year for America. Civil unrest. Not a lot of happy stories going on. So... Americans are kind of looking for a distraction. And what happens is they got this duel between Denny McLean of the Detroit Tigers and a guy called Bob Gibson from St. Louis Cardinals. Both fantastic pitchers. And this yep. 
becomes known as the year of the pitcher. These two race to see who's the best. They are so dominant of the league. Okay. And it becomes a really interesting thing of the duel between them both. While Denny's this organ playing, interview giving, <laughs> Pepsi drinking, yeah. airplane flying <laughs> gambler, and Denny is this Irish Catholic, Bob Gibson is African-American. And where Denny is gregarious and talks to everyone, Bob Gibson's got what's described at best as a menacing personality. So you've got a black pitcher versus a white pitcher and polar opposite. In interesting times. In interesting times. So it really captures that this is the number one story in America at the time aside from all the civil unrest. It just captures it. Bob Gibson, who is a much nicer person than Denny, it turns (laughs) out, but at the time has this absolute menacing demeanor that even his own teammates and opposition players were scared of him, right? Managers would never pull him from a game, even though he's a pitcher (laughs) because he was so scary. He said one of his former managers said you wouldn't see him talk to the other players at all. It seemed like he just hated them. He said, I ain't going to get friendly with anybody. And McLean said he was a nasty guy, nasty. He was antisocial. We did the Bob Hope show together that year and the guy barely spoke to me. He's a thousand percent better now, but he's still intimidating. Yeah. So this is what you've got. You've got Gibson really like just terrifying everyone. So suddenly, this is how tough Gibson is. Mm-hmm. In 1967, the year before this, he was pitching for the World Championship that year, and they only went on to win the World Series. And Gibson, in the middle of it, he's having a dominant season. At one point, Roberto Clemente, he hit the ball really hard and it went all the way in. You know how quick it goes from the pitcher from the thing? It hits Gibson in the leg and actually fractures his leg above the right ankle. Gibson still refuses to go off and pitches to the next three batters on a broken leg. (laughs) So that's what he's like. Wow. Okay. So this is this huge thing and what has happened at this point is baseballs have been very dominated by pitchers. They'd actually after 961 shortened the um, strike zone after Roger Maris set the record. So pitchers are dominating. And so McLean and Gibson are just putting on this clinic and everyone's watching because it becomes this race who can get to 30 wins, which hasn't happened in about 60 years. So they're all like, can someone actually break this record? McLean starts the year early in May by criticizing Detroit fans for being the biggest front-running fans in the world, front-runners <laughs> and the world's worst. If people go along with us and stay off our backs, we will win this thing. Unbelievable. So that's what he says to Detroit about his own fans. And did the fans love him? Mm, they had a mixed relationship yeah. with him, right? When he was playing well, they were on board. Yeah. Now, this is what he was like. Jim Northrup, who played right field for the Tigers, said, I remember a game, I think it was against Washington, when Denny was ahead 3-0 in the ninth inning. Denny's first pitch was a fastball hit for a home run. His second pitch was a fastball, which was also hit for a run. Then he struck the next three batters out, all with fastballs. I went to him and said, Denny, did it ever occur to you to throw anything but a fastball? He said, why? When was the last time you saw anyone hit three home runs in a row? <laughs> now, this is That's Denny. great. While McLean's pursuing these 30 wins against Bob Gibson, Gibson's just only focused on baseball. Mm. McLean's zooming around in Learjets, which he's flying. He's playing his Hammond organs. He's swigging his Pepsi Cola. He's hanging out with Steve Allen, Bob Hope, Ed Sullivan, Joey Bishop, Glenn Campbell, and the Smothers Brothers. What? Because he's got this Hollywood he's kind got, of. He's he plays organ back. on all their shows and all this sort of stuff. He's on the cover of Time and Sports okay. Illustrated at the same time, all while this is happening. He records an album, <laughs> right? What was the genre? It's all just organ music. 
<laughs> like he gives organ lessons out of his home to two dozen students at $3.50 an hour. This is all while pitching, right? He went around and booked himself in advance into the Riviera in Vegas and the Detroit Auto Show and Disneyland and a hundred other places for him to play. So he's running around booking gigs. Yeah. His catcher says the rules for Diddy just don't seem the same as the rest of us because he'd finish a game, then get in his plane and fly to a gig in Vegas, play a gig and then fly back to the next thing. Doing whatever he wanted, right? So McLean, this is an idea. On one day, he beats the Oakland A's on a Sunday. He charters a jet to Las Vegas for Monday. Then he flies to Houston and pitches another two games at the All-Star game. <laughs> then he returns to Vegas, all flying himself, yep. to book off-season engagements into various casinos. Then he flies to Minnesota to rejoin the Tigers. That's like his normal flight and stuff like that. Unbelievable. This is how chaotic this year is for him. All the time the meat is following mm-hmm. One time he's in Minneapolis, he's playing an organ gig around. Just, uh, still getting this is in the middle the of the season. Yeah, yeah. There's a big market for organ players. Yeah, it's big. Like, and he's a star. Oh. Suddenly he remembers while he's in Minneapolis that he's scheduled the, that same afternoon. He's got a gig that night in Minneapolis, but he then remembers, oh, I'm meant to do an afternoon music store appearance in Detroit for the album to sign autographs. Right. So he f- quickly gets in his plane. <laughs> flies back to Detroit, goes to the store and finds it empty, which is weird because he's a big star yeah. in Detroit especially. Yeah, so he goes up to the manager who doesn't recognize him straight away and goes, isn't Danny McLean supposed to be playing organ here? And the store manager said, yes, next Saturday. And Danny goes, oh, thank you, and leaves and flies back to <laughs> Minneapolis. <laughs> okay. So this is what he's like, right? He's not getting away with his teammates even though he's winning. In one game at Fenway Park in Boston, his manager comes out to remove him in the eighth inning and McLean just looks at him and just goes, I'm not giving you the ball. I'm not leaving. <laughs> That's a hard and he's no like, the man, Yeah, the manager was like, no, I'm pulling you for the game for a relief pitcher. He just goes, nah. <laughs> and just stands there and stares down the manager in yeah. front of the whole game. The manager eventually goes, um, okay, I'll just go back to the dugout then. That's it. And then the three best batters for the Red Sox come up after this moment, yes. <laughs> and Denny strikes all three of them out in nine pitches, <laughs> walks back to the dugout, and then proceeds to give an earful to the manager. Fantastic. Everywhere he goes, Hammond installs an organ for him to play <laughs> for press conferences. Yeah. like With a Pepsi holder. Yeah, so he was always doing that. He names his dog Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't know whether he was wanting a drink or calling his dog. Yeah, I know. Pepsi. He then has another game where he he plays and he wins. He then goes out for drink afterwards with Glenn Campbell, who wrote Wichita Lineman, right? So he goes out for drinks afterwards. He then doesn't really sleep, goes to Disneyland the next morning to organize more gigs, then goes to Capitol Records to pose for publicity photos. Then he goes down the street to tape the Steve Allen show, plays organ, catches up with Steve Allen and Pat Harrington Jr., who was an actor at the time, and then goes all the back quickly to play the game. So this is what he's sort of doing. Then he pitches the game. Then they all have to fly back to Detroit, and it's 1 a.m. in the morning, and he sits in the co-pilot's seat and helps fly the plane all the way to Lowen back at 7.30 (laughs) a.m. He basically hasn't slept for 24 hours. Fantastic. So he's doing all this sort of stuff. He's absolutely crying. He says he can't remember. On the September the 14th, Saturday afternoon, he finally wins his 30th game of the year. This is a huge deal. This was a. Is he the first to 30? No, but it hasn't been done since a guy called Dizzy Dean did it, which about 30 years before. And back then, 
that was a very rare thing to do, right? Back then, yeah. baseball, the last time it happened was before the real home run era yeah, and everything, yeah. right? It was, okay. it was thought to be an impossible thing to do. But he's, he's won the race this season. He's won the race. And you got to remember, he's on the cover of Time for this. Yeah, so it's for, a huge thing, For right? what? His organ playing? His Pepsi <laughs> drinking? Or his pitching? He says he can't really remember winning the 30th game. He said that whole year is a blur. One of the reasons was the Tigers actually rallied from behind in the ninth to win that game. And McLean, overjoyed, leapt high off the dugout bench and brained himself on the concrete dugout ceiling, leaving himself dazed. Good Lord. He gets up and is interviewed straight after by Sandy Koufax, who was a famous pitcher, yep. Dizzy Dean, who held the record. In the interview, he proclaims that Tigers fans are the world's greatest fans. <laughs> I love you guys. So he does that on September 14. On September 16, Capitol Records releases Denny McLean at the organ. <laughs> He'd recorded two of Denny McLean at the organ and another one, Denny McLean in Las Vegas, which is a live album that oh, year. Of course. He put out two. He once was interviewed in the recently. He said, if you'd like to hear it, I can sell you a couple of thousand copies. <laughs> he finishes with a 31 and 6 record, an ERA of 1.96, which is just absolutely like ridiculous. Take your word for it. Bob Gibson, his competitor in this, finishes 22 and 9. But his team isn't as good. It so, is, yeah, right. but he finishes in the area of one point one two, which is like so low. It's almost that's just ridiculous. So they're both very good. They both win in each of their leagues. One's in the National League. One's in the American League. They both win the MVP award and they win the Cy Young awards each, which are the best pitchers yep. in the league. Also, they're destined now to meet in the World Series. You've had this okay. all year. Here and we go. Before the season ends, though, Danny's made his thirty. And he grew up idolizing New York Yankee center fielder Mickey Mantle. Yep. He actually faces Mantle in his last season on September 19 that year. And Jim Price was the Tigers catcher that day. Mantle came up. Denny and him conspired to give Mickey Mantle a going away gift of a home run. <laughs> right? What? <laughs> Because he's his idol. So what? The catcher's telling him what's coming. So Mantle's about to retire. He's tied with Jimmy Fox with 534 career home runs, which makes him, I think, the third highest in, in history at the time. And they want him to get it outright. They're Is already, he betting on this? Well, Detroit's already clinched the American League pennant and Denny's won his 30. So Denny's – and they're up 6-1 at this point. So he's like, one home run, what I care. Denny calls the catcher out to the mound when Mantle comes up and says, when I got there, there's the catcher. Denny said, hey, big guy, should I let him hit one? <laughs> I said, it was a great idea. Mickey was always nice to me. So I went back behind the plate and Mickey, like he always did, was tapping the plate with his bat when I said, want us to groove one for you? Mantle didn't really believe Price that they were really <laughs> going to do this. And he looks up and sees McLean nodding in agreement, like all happily. <laughs> and he understood. So... The catcher Price says to Mantle, high and tight, mediocre cheese, which means mediocre speed. Yeah. McLean pitches one and Mantle watches it and it's just this absolute cheese ball down yeah, the middle yeah. and lets it go because you just can't believe they're doing, they're doing it. it. They throw the second one, it's the same again. He suddenly cottons on. It's on. These guys are giving me a home run. So he pitches the third one and Mantle hits it in the upper deck in the right field. <laughs> It's the second to last home run of his career and gives him sole possession of third place on the all-time home run list, only behind Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. You're welcome. McLean's clapping as Mickey rounds the bases. 
Hilarious. <laughs> actually clapping his hero. He just hit home run off him. <laughs> the next batter was Joe Peppertone, and he said, give me one too. He wasn't Give retiring. Give me one too. I want one. And the catcher says, no way, you're not Mickey Mandel. McLean responded by throwing the next pitch at Peppertone's head. <laughs> <laughs> This is just outrageous, mate. <laughs> Give me one too. Yeah. Mate, we're not handing them out. Yeah, it's fella. not charity. Come on. Uh, Special occasions only. After the game, they're all interviewed. Mantle says, how about that guy just laying it out there for me? McLean's coy in the locker room with the press. They're saying, did you do it on purpose? He's going, I don't know what you're talking about. But with a smile on his face. Yeah, yeah. The um, then baseball commissioner gave him a telling off about it. <laughs> But McLean just denied it. But yeah. later on, after his career was finished, admitted it yeah, wholeheartedly, did. right? Give me one. <laughs> so good. Peppertone's tried it on. But He's then really... he just throws it at his head. That's what I love. It's like it's, he doesn't just like go, nah. He actually goes, How dare you? You ask for it. Yeah. How dare you question my integrity? <laughs> it's about to be the World Series. It's Gibson versus McLean, these two fantastic All right. pitchers. As Gibson, the night before the first game, they're both scheduled to pitch against each other yep. game one. Gibson goes to sleep at a normal hour on the eve of game one. McLean's in a lounge on the Sheraton Jefferson Hotel playing a gig. <laughs> so there was an audience and he was taking requests on the organ. The night slips into Tuesday night, which is the night before the first yeah. game, slips into Wednesday and he remains there taking requests, making dedications. Plays the song Sweet Georgia Brown, the Harlem Globetrotters yeah. song, and he makes it a dedication to Bob Gibson because Bob Gibson, before he got into pitching, was a Harlem Globetrotter briefly right. for one season. Well, that's nice. Well, he hated it so much, Gibson, because it was clowning <laughs> around and he's a man that only cares about winning. He hated it, so he wouldn't have liked this tribute at all. No, okay. Anyway, they get up the next day, well, for Denny, just roll on from the night before and, of course... McLean loses that one. And by this point, Denny at the end of 968, to get to 30 wins, his arm is shot. He's taken 15 quarter zone shots in right. arm pain in 1968. He does two dozen more in 1969. So his arm is starting to lose yeah. it after this. It's not helping that he's drinking 24 cans of Pepsi and out every night playing gigs. Why Bob Gibson's fine. So they match up twice in this and McLean loses twice to Bob Gibson because it's best of seven the yep. World Series. But eventually... They go on and the Tigers win it with McLean winning his third one, but sure. it's not against Bob Gibson. Okay. He actually skips a day off to pitch early. And so finally he has clinched the World Series and 30. And this is sort of the high point he's of done it. Denny McLean's. He's on top of the mountain. Yeah. He's only like about three years into his career. Mm. And the future is incredibly bright for Denny McLean. Brilliant. What could go wrong? In the next year, 1969, they actually – on response to how well they've dominated, Major League Baseball actually shrink its size of the strike zone slightly to help the batters out. So, But he has another big year anyway. He wins 24 games, gets a second Cy Young Award, the best pitcher in the year. He's 25 years old at this point. So he's absolutely going incredibly well. Still making all the money outside of yep. baseball. So he's the richest baseball player in the world. He's clashing with his manager though. His manager gets the pitching coach fired. And so McLean starts to miss workouts to show his displeasure and starts turning up at the park only just before he's about to pitch. Right. So he's not around much and he falls out. One thing that happened this year in 1969 is his 
scheduled to open in the pitching 1969 All-Star Game in Washington, D.C. Now, it gets rained out on the day it's meant to be, so it gets pushed back one day. He says, well, I can't be there at the start because I've got a dental appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they go, what do you mean you got a dental appointment? He goes, well, it was scheduled the day before. It's not my fault it got rained out. I'll be there by the second inning. And you know why he needs a dental appointment? Too much Pepsi. That stuff will rot your teeth. Do you want to know how right you are? Oh, my God. He had nine teeth capped <laughs> because of his Pepsi drinking. This is how bad oh, it's going for him. All nine of his... caps. Thank you, Pepsi. Yep. So anyway, what he does is on the morning, he goes to the dental appointment, which is in Detroit. It starts at 7 a.m. It lasts three hours. Yep. That's how bad his teeth yeah. are from the Pepsi. <laughs> He then gets in the plane, flies back for an hour and arrives at the All-Star game during the second inning to play. Yep. People are not happy because he didn't start and other pitchers start. I think they're already losing about nine to two or something. Yeah. So this is where they start to get a bit annoyed with Denny. Yeah. Right? Denny has up to this point been a fantastic pitcher and so you sort of get a bit of rope if you're really good as a This is person. typical of these sportsmen who are outside the box, isn't yeah. it? You tolerate it while you're being successful, but the minute the wheels fall off, yeah. you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. But he's still pitching at a very high level in 1969. So it looks bright for him still in February 1970. The yep. season starts in April. So in February, before the season's about to start, Sports Illustrated publish a story on their front page titled, Denny McLean and the Mob. Baseball's big scandal. Oh, no. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. I preferred him on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. The article's worse than the headline. Jesus. <laughs> oh, <laughs> McLean, the article alleges, had fallen in deep with the Syrian mob in Flint, Michigan, right? And not long afterwards, they say he'd already filed for bankruptcy despite his $200,000 salary and all the money he's making from gigs and yes. Pepsi and Hammond organs. What's happened is, remember with the Pepsi exec, he's bought into a bookmaking business. Good Lord. The bookmaking business, depending on who you believe, was a bit of a scam where they were trying to take McLean and the Pepsi exec. So they were getting him to invest, but then really just taking his money money and never expecting to really pay him back, right? But what happens is, in the middle of it, a guy called Edward Voshen, who was just a degenerate gambler. Yep. He had put a bet on a 19 to 2 long shot and won $46,000, right. which the bookmarking operation couldn't cover. So they then go, when the people came asking for the money, why don't you go talk to Denny McLean? He <laughs> owns this bookmarking business. Yeah. Right? Okay. Voshan, who was the gambler that won the money, he couldn't get the money. So he goes and contacts a guy called Tony Guy Colne. Who is he a, ma- like a, he's a mafia soldier? <laughs> he's an enforced for Joe Zerrell, the then Detroit's crime boss. Okay. So he's the guy that comes looking for the money. The Sports Illustrated article says that the foot injury suffered by McLean in late 1967, that's the one where he couldn't appear during the critical end of season pennant race with the two broken, two broken toes. toes, that he said was due to getting up and stubbing oh. his toes when the raccoons were getting into his bins. Yeah. Actually, a Occurred when Tony shows up and stomps on his feet when he refuses to pay the wow. the gambler, and that's how we broke. That's his making thing. sense. His teammates all go, "I bet it's true." Yeah, and they're furious because they lost that one. Also, because Tony, the mafia 
thing had knew he had broken Denny's toes, then puts a bet on the Angels to win the last game of the season and for the Red Sox to make the things because he knows Denny's <laughs> he knows not going to be out of pitch, ahead of everyone. It's a win-win. And that last game against it, it McLean wins. So that raises the thing, did McLean throw it to make the bet up to him? Right, so there's a sort of thing he's was he This is the problem games. now, isn't it? I preferred it when he was just throwing softballs to Mickey Mantle. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that, that kind of rigging I'm okay with. This is the other be... stuff is heavy. The commissioner of baseball, Bowie Coon, he suspends McLean indefinitely while they investigate. Now, one of the problems in investigating is Voshan, who's the gambler, who's in debt to everyone, even though he won this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the mafia are after him too for a whole bunch of debts as well. He died in the meantime. A car he'd rented crashed into a tree on a highway outside Detroit. Sports Illustrated wrote, the road was dry, the visibility was good, the road straight. So there's a suggestion <laughs> you, that you join the dots. there's a lot going on here. McLean denies almost all the details in the story. He says that he invested $15,000 in the bookmaking operation but was no longer involved with it at the time of the 67 pennant race, although he did admit loaning to one of his former partners $10,000 to pay off the gambling debt that Sports Illustrated had linked to his broken foot. So he says, didn't happen the broken foot, but I did right. lend the money. Not everyone believes him on this, right? It's sort of thing. <laughs> the problem was a lot of the people making these accusations are kind of criminals and low life. So a lot of people are willing yeah. to give Denny a bit of the... Who to believe. But they're sort of worrying about whether he was throwing games. On April 1, 1970, the baseball commissioner... He says, while McLean believed he had become part in this operation and has so admitted to me, it would appear that he was the victim of a confidence scheme. I would thus conclude that McLean was never a partner and had no proprietary interest in the bookmaking operation. And he basically suspends him for three months for sort of bringing the game into disrepute. Yeah. But that's it. Now, the thing about this is McLean denies it all at the time. Later on when he said, I didn't feel threatened, none of this actually happened. He then wrote in his memoir in 2007, I was spooked about the ghost of Ed Voshan and worried about being exposed. I kept expecting someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, where's my money? Or that my car was going to blow up. Oh, so dear. it sort of seems like he was a bit more yeah, things. Indeed. All the reporters can't believe that Denny's got off on this. Even his teammates, one of his teammates said, <laughs> if Denny's innocent, it should be nothing. If he's guilty, this is not enough. <laughs> Jim Price, the catcher who pitched the yes. caught the Michael Mantle game, said we all thought he'd get at least two years or nothing, but it seems like this is like just a strange yeah. kind of one. They clearly want him to play. Yeah. He's back July one to a packed house pitching, but he struggles and for the next several weeks until on October twenty eighth, in what he claims is a harmless prank, he douses two Detroit reporters with buckets of ice water earning him a seven-day suspension from the Tigers. <laughs> Before that suspension is up that week, long one, the commissioner of baseball discovers that McLean had carried a gun on a team flight in August and had waved it in a Chicago restaurant. So they just say, I think you better sit out the rest of the year. I'm just happy he's flying with the team now. <laughs> so what's happened is his record that year even though he he's had a shocker, it. that's not his best. Lo wins three, loses five, has an ERA of four point six three. Now, considering he's having an ERA of about one point yeah. something earlier, this is like going very badly. He'd lived the past years just as his success just meant he was allowed to do everything. He could sharp late, he could fly his plane to music yeah. gigs after games. He'd argued with teammates, managers, the fans, everyone. But when you're finishing thirty-one games winning. People kind of turn to blind. I know when you're finishing three and five, everyone's just like, no. you're in absolute pain. 
And on top of this is has to announce he's bankrupt again when he gives his money to a lawyer to look after it who flees to Japan. <laughs> so oh, he's got no money. He's got debts of 446000 and assets of $413 at this point. Assets of $400? Yeah, with, okay. a, with half a million dollars in debt against that. That's just not working out. He and his friend Jim Northrup, who's a teammate, they decide that the way to make money out of, to get out of this hole is to create a nude baseball calendar. <laughs> but this, it's obvious. <laughs> of course. But this oh. doesn't happen, right? So by 1971, his arms absolutely stuffed. He's had so much cortisone shots in his arm, he can't pitch a fastball anymore. And he was always a fastball pitcher. On top of this, because of the Pepsi, mm. the weight is starting to show. Okay. Yeah. Right? So he's really putting on the weight. He gets traded to the Washington Senators, who no one can believe picked him up. And the manager is Ted Williams, who's a very famous batter, second only to Babe Ruth, really, okay. for Best and Red Sox. He hates him. Can't believe they've <laughs> traded for him. Feelings absolutely mutual. And McLean becomes a chartered member of the Underminers Club, whose whole <laughs> view is to just get Williams fired. They spend the whole season feuding yeah. with each other hate each other. He finishes terribly, wins 10 games, loses 22, and Williams cuts him. He then gets traded in 1972 between the Oakland A's and the Atlanta Braves, but he's so bad that eventually they cut him. At the age of 29, he has suddenly out and he's putting on 4.5 kilos or 10 pounds every single year because of his Pepsi use, right? It's like literally unbelievable. Him. So his baseball career is absolutely over. He's cooked. His teammate who he's going to do the nude calendar with describes him <laughs> and his post-career. I hope he's not in the nude calendar. If he's putting on 4.5 exactly. Ks, yeah, I don't want to see that. This is what his teammate and friend said. He's the original flim-flam man. Any day I expect him to come riding up on a wagon selling elixir out of the back as he's leaving town, <laughs> probably being run out of town, but that's Denny. Denny goes on to model Haynes underwear. He continues to play the organ in a variety of cocktail lounges. He launches his own place called Gaffner's. He starts a giant TV business. Right. He becomes a mortgage broker. All of these go broke. He ends up having to earn money hustling for golf because he plays off scratch. So he's quite a good golfer. And because he's famous, people will bet like bet, bet yeah. with him. And he makes that's how he makes money money. He opens a line of walk-in medical clinics that goes bust. He's all over the shop. He becomes gen- focus on something, Denny. He becomes general manager of a minor league baseball team called the Memphis Blues, who shortly after him taking over go belly up. Dear, oh dear. His wife keeps leaving him, but she comes back. In 1978, all his Cy Young and MVP awards, his magazine covers and scrapbooks, everything from his base career goes up in a house fire, and oh. he has not insured any of it. He says, it was my fault. I forgot to pay the premium. So after abandoning his attempts at a comeback, which he'd thought about amongst yeah. all this, and the fact that all his business are going bad, he starts associating with gamblers and organized crime figures, including Anthony the Ant, <laughs> Spilotro, a notorious enforcer for the Chicago outfit, as yeah. the mob's known. He also then moves to Florida, where he becomes a partner in First Fidelity Financial Services, which is rumoured to be backed by the mafia. Yep. It's a loan sharking and money laundering operation. He gets more and more involved in this. He once makes $160,000 smuggling a fugitive out of the country in his airplane. 
I knew that plane would come in handy. <laughs> so eventually the US Justice Department starts to sniff around Denny and his associates and several of them are willing to talk because yeah. it's various deal. So in March 1984, McLean is indicted under the Federal Racketeer Influencer and Corruption Organization Act, the RICO statute. Yeah, okay. That, you that's know a, that. All the, anyone that's watched any Goodfellas or any mafia yeah. thing, no, this is the one to break down the thing. He's charged with racketeering, extortion, and cocaine trafficking. So in his plane again. In his, his plane. plane. So of course. he's tried and convicted for 23 years in prison. No. The government convinced the jury that in 1981, McLean had been involved in obtaining a $40,000 loan with a ridiculous interest rate of 130%. That's the interest rate, 130. He loans it to a disco owner named Alton Dale Sparks from a bookmaker, Seymour Shear. It's one of those ones they give you where you can't possibly get yourself out under from the dead. And then they just take your whole business and stuff. Shear threatened Sparks with bodily harm. And he introduced the disco owner Sparks to Frank Cocciaro, a reputed underworld figure who testimony revealed told Sparks that the money he owed belonged to him and that if he failed to repay it, he would cut Sparks' ears off. <laughs> for Sounds his, fair. For his part in all of this and setting a lot of this up, McLean's convicted of racketeering, conspiracy and extortion charges. He's also convicted on the drug charges. They argue that in 1982, McLean's golf bags stuffed with cocaine were flown on his plane from Fort Lauderdale to Newark, where the drugs were to have been sold. McLean wasn't on the actual trip, but he did load the golf bags onto the plane and a whole whole bunch of other things. So there he is in jail for 23 years. The first night in prison, he says he prayed that he would die in his sleep. While he's in jail, his lawyer says, we're going to appeal this. It's not the lawyer who took all his money, is it? So he protests his lawyer that the trial was a circus, right? So McLean's in jail. His lawyer says this is an absolute trade. He says the judge had allowed jurors to stand in the jury box while the trial was on, eating food and drinking coffee. So the trial's happy and they're just happening and the jurors, instead of sitting and watching, are standing and chatting and having coffee and eating like they're at the races or something, right? Um, He said it wasn't possible because one, that that he got a fair trial because one, the judge pushed the trial forward with undue haste and ordered the jurors to stand up for exercise in sort of like, you know, a seventh inning stretch in baseball. (laughs) Like, guys, we're not stopping the trial, but you can stand up and stretch and eat and and have coffee and everything. He said this often happened while I was interrogating key government witnesses. He says, this is the lawyer. I've never seen a court conducted like all that. The jurors were so distracted it was impossible to get a fair trial. So because of all of this. So in 1987, the appeal goes before the court. He's been in jail two years at this point of his 23 years and the convictions are overturned. It was ruled right. that the judge had done a terrible job of running the trial. So it's a retrial, basically. It's a retrial. The government re-indict him. They're getting a bit sick of this case by this point. And They're Denny's not him. the main person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Denny's He's not the main potatoes. So they decide that they'll re-indict him. He agrees to plead guilty and they give him a 12-year sentence but they let him off with five years probation and given the time served, they go, you're just free to go. That's a win-win. It's a, well, for him, it's a win like they're fierce. Yeah. He's out. He gets a job at a Detroit 7-Eleven store as part of his rehabilitation and can be fine there signing. <laughs> signing the organ? Well, his next job after that is he starts playing organ in a Detroit bar. By complete chance, the bartender there who's also down on his luck 
is former heavyweight champion Leon Spinks, oh who's an Olympic gold medalist, a former heavyweight yeah. champion of the world, and one of the five fighters in the world to defeat Muhammad Ali. Yep. He is down on his luck. So he is behind the bar serving drinks, and Denny McLean is playing organ. So this is the bar people walking yeah. into. The paper go and do a, like, a report on everything. He's asked, how did you get this job? And McLean said, my agent. Doesn't everybody have an agent? <laughs> So this is all happening. While he's doing this, he starts to try and rebuild his life. He becomes promotion director for a minor league hockey team. Good Lord. The Fort Wayne Comets of the International Hockey League. A businessman called David Welker, he'd bought the Comets. They were bankrupt and so he decides to try and build them up. He hires McLean right out of prison to sell the franchise to the town. McLean pulled off several schemes to sell tickets, most notably uh, Turkey Night. <laughs> the Commons had traditionally given away 15 turkeys at Thanksgiving, but McLean heard about that and he scoffed and goes, We're going to go big. It's going to be raining turkeys. We're going to give away a thousand turkeys. A thousand turkeys? <laughs> oh, I hope he's done the sums. So he runs a whole bunch of schemes around this. Um, he's fired not long afterwards with a problem with the team budget. Turkeys. While he's doing all this, he seems to get his life in order. He, he's doing card signings where he gets paid yep. to sign baseball cards. He gets a gig as a radio announcer. It's a daily talk radio show. And he does this for years on WXYT. And he is opinionated, funny. He'll talk about any topic, politics, sport, yep. whatever. He becomes like the big radio jock. Well, he's getting paid. He's back. Yeah, he's back. He's getting paid $400,000 a year annually. I like where this is going. So That's he's great. Like, yeah. So he's a shock jock, but he's funny, he's entertaining. Yeah. So you'd think he'd found a bit of his equilibrium, yeah. finally got his life on back. Well he's done. Dodged prison. In 1992, his daughter dies when she's hit by a drunk driver. Okay. This sends him a bit spiraling again. In 1993, he's not happy with just being a successful radio host. So him and his partner buy a troubled meatpacking company called Pete Packaging. Oh, my God. Soon after the sale, it's found out that 2.5 million of their pension funds are missing and the firm ends up going bankrupt in 1995. McLean's partner also evicted from a studio and apartment property for non-payment of rent on a radio network they had bought as a Pete subsidiary to sell sports and news programming. McLean ordered to pay $75,000 to former business partners for this radio deal. Hmm. The feds start to get very interested in all this. McLean's partner had appointed themselves trustees of Pete Packaging's retirement income plan two weeks after the buying the company in January 1994 and formed two shell corporations. They transformed more than $12 million of the pension plan money back and forth between all of these to make it appear like legitimate mortgage repayments, but really $2.5 million just goes kind of into thin air from it. They then later signed and backdated mortgage documents in an attempt to make the money transfer look like a legitimate mortgage loan. The guy's an idiot. <laughs> the guy, just stay in your lane. He's all over the shop. You're not a businessman and you're shonky. Every business deal he does. Stay on the radio and entertain. Be an entertainer, not a businessman. Because it's rare someone can make legitimate huge amounts of money legitimately. Yeah. But it's like he and always, he just, loves the... The thriller, like it's like he always wanted more. Like you do fifteen turkeys, we're doing a thousand. It's like fifteen was fine. Any of the ramifications? Yeah, there's no. It's he always wants to be a big deal. He seems impulsive. In 1996, he's convicted on charges of embezzlement, mail fraud, (laughs) 
and conspiracy with the theft of the two point five million, and he's sentenced to six years in prison. I was going to say he's going back to jail. He's going back to jail. While in prison, his legal woes continue. In nine ninety eight, McLean's indicted along with John Gotti Jr., the okay, mafia yes. don of New York, the son sure. of John Gotti, on charges of running a phony telephone calling card business. But the charges are eventually dropped, so he's okay. The day he returns to prison, Sharon finally files for divorce. <laughs> She's had enough Not before finally. time. But yeah. She said that 39 years of living a life on the non-stop edge, just that was enough for her. Yeah. Well, so he serves his whole six years this time. There's no, yeah. there's no mistrial. He claims that he never meant to steal the money. He thought it was all innocent and he made everything right with everyone. No one else agrees with that. Sure. For someone who keeps getting in trouble, he's always innocent and he's like completely yeah. innocent. Like there's no... It's a lot of bad luck. Yeah. When he gets out, Sharon picks him up and takes him to the halfway house where he has to work for a bit. Four months out of getting out of prison, he gets down on his hands and knees and he asks Sharon to marry him again. His daughter was against it. She said she'd seen her mother grow and get stronger on her own. Sharon said, it was a very hard decision. I spent most of my life with him and it was just, well, I couldn't imagine my life without him. And she says, yes, and gets remarried to him. In 2008, he finds himself in more legal hot water when he's arrested for failing to appear in court for a civic matter. He owes creditors $60,000. This is a Texas-based law firm that once represented his telecommunications company, Cloud Voice Telecom. So they're trying to collect these debt, can't get it, and he's called before the sheriff. They seize his property to try and satisfy all this. He eventually manages to sell off a bunch of possessions to pay this off. And the IRS put a um, lien on his baseball pension to help him pay restitution for his victims. Now, this is his last run-in with the law, but I think it sums up Denny McLean's life. Please. On September 22, 2011, he's arrested in Michigan at the Canada-US border after officials discover an outstanding warrant against him from Louisiana. Okay. Uh, now, the reason he's at the US-Canada border is he's driving near Canada but on the American side and there's construction detours and he gets confused and takes the exit across the Blue Water Bridge and into Canada. Right. So he doesn't mean to cross over into no. Canada but has accidentally crossed over into Canada. He returns to the US where he has to go through US customs, right? Mm-hmm. Which he was never meant to be there. Yeah. And they find the outstanding warrant. And technically, because he's coming from the Canada side, he's a fugitive. <laughs> Accidentally, but he's a fugitive. <laughs> now, this warrant's to do with the sale of scrap metal in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> His lawyer says that this has been a problem where a joint business venture, someone had not been fully compensated for the scrap metal that had been bought into their business. So the warrant was issued. The lawyer basically works out a way of him paying this all back. Yes. And he's finally released. But this sums it up. In 2019, Sharon finally passes away after getting Parkinson's disease. Yes. Denny to, tr- to look after her while she's got um, Parkinson's disease. He has got to over 300 pounds by this point because of his Pepsi habit and has to have lap band surgery. It never occurred to him to stop drinking Pepsi. Nah. And he undergoes lap band surgery. He loses 156 pounds or 24 pant sizes to look after her. 
But she passed away in 98 and after that has to sell a lot of his memorabilia yeah. that's left to thing. He's now 79, still alive. And in the movie The Upside of Anger, which was a Kevin Costner I'm film, aware of it. Yes. Kevin Costner's character is based on Denny McLean in that movie. Wow. And that brings us to the end of the tale of Denny McLean. <laughs> Can I just tell you something quickly about that movie? Yeah. It's when I realised I might enjoy alcohol too much, <laughs> right? And I'll, I'll tell you why. So, you know when you go to a cinema and it's showing a film that's set in a hospital and you're with a nurse or a doctor and they start going, oh, look, a, a nurse can't call a code blue. She'd have to check the charts first because it's terrible. Or if it's set in an airport and you're with a, a pilot or something, yeah. they'll go, oh, look, a control tower can't, yeah. can't clear that flight plan. Yeah. You know, there's no second officer on deck. Yeah. Well, I found I was doing this watching Kevin Costner play an alcoholic. Oh, you didn't think it was the realism? Was I, it wasn't there for me. This was my little pocket oh, so, of knowledge. So you're like I'm going, look, he's turned up at work and he's ironed his shirt. So you're like a World War II expert watching mm. Saving Private Ryan. You're like, <laughs> they didn't have those guns on the beach no, or the, the no. barriers are pointing the wrong way. You huh. were doing that with an alcoholic. He's living on his own. He's got food in the fridge. This is rubbish. <laughs> this is rubbish. But that was loosely based. I had no idea. Yeah, it's loosely Because I was quite frustrated him. at Kevin Costner in that film. Yeah, well, there. so this is the tale of someone who just, for whatever reason, maybe his upbringing and everything, Nothing was ever good enough. At best, he's a fun idiot. He's like a, a lovely yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy. You laugh at his antics. Yeah. And then on the other side, he's a catastrophe. A few times he's shown up at Detroit Tigers events, like remembering the yes. you know, 1968 World Championship or anything. And it would be fair to say he gets a muted response. From the fans? From the fans. Because on one hand, they're like one of the one of world. greatest ever pitcher, one of my World Series. Uh. But on the other side, it's like, a lot of mob connections, a lot yeah. of, you know, a lot of... But how's it going now? The last I've really been able to find on him is 2020 selling after his wife had passed away, yeah. he's downsizing. He's 79 now. I think now he's getting to the end of his... his he's mate. made it to 79. It's a victory for but everybody. But getting out of jail on a 23-year charge is sort of he's had a few breaks go his way as well let's not forget he was on the cover of time magazine and then he's doing time <laughs> he's run the gamut uh, Tyson o'reilly thank you once again thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can contact us at sportsbazaar.com you can leave a message for us there you can also get in touch with us through our social media and follow us and keep up to date and if you're following us on apple podcasts please go on and rate us it lets people know about us Tell your friends we want to share this nonsense with as many people as possible. And once again, thanks for listening.